The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. Presently, by God's grace, we are undertaking a complete exegetical study of Paul's letter to the Romans. In our last episode, we examined Romans chapter 2, verses 21 through chapter 3, verse 3. In this episode, we continue our trek verse by verse through Paul's epistle to the Romans. Keep in mind, as stated, that Paul is now on his third missionary journey, riding from the city of Corinth to the church at Rome, where Paul had not yet visited. Let's continue our study of Romans with chapter 3, verse 4. Now, by reminder, making our way to verse 4, Paul began in chapter 3, verse 1 of Romans to open up yet another hypothetical question wherein he asks, what advantage is there in being a Jew? And secondly, what profit is there in circumcision? In verse 2, as you'll recall, Paul 
gave us a substantive answer where he says that there is much in every way. Firstly, all the things that God did, which are recorded in Genesis through Malachi, throughout the Bible, are historical events given in historical narrative and which occurred in historical time to real people in real places and wherein God gave real promises to those real people. Secondly, those historical narratives form the landscape, the backdrop, the stage where God portrays by type and by shadow substances which are going to be fulfilled within the economy of his redemptive plan and as uh, characterized by the person and the nature and the substance of who his son, Jesus Yeshua, fulfilled. So there are both which exist in reality and with, without one, you do not have the other. You cannot just simply dismiss the historical and yet maintain the spiritual substance. Neither can you have the spiritual substance without the historical narrative. Both are necessary, and it is in that context that we say that is the reason why that there is an advantage to being a Jew, because being a Jew meant that you are a person to whom God gave promises to your ancestors. And because God is trustworthy, that God will, in fact, fulfill those promises. Were that not the case, as Paul points out, we would not be able to then rely on the spiritual promises which he gives uh, through his son, Jesus. As we concluded our last episode, Paul asked the next hypothetical question, saying, for what if some did not believe? Does their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Again, here Paul answers his own question in verse 4, saying, quote, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou might be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged, unquote. So paraphrase, Paul, Paul is basically saying, of course not. God is always true. He's always reliable. He's always honest. And he's always trustworthy. Why? Because that's God's nature. Conversely, whereas every man is ultimately a liar because that's man's nature apart from God. Now, the quote, as it is written, unquote, is a reference to Psalm chapter 51, verses 1 through 12, where it says, quote, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou might be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapened in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit." Unquote. So, God's promises and these principles are in place specifically to demonstrate the righteousness and reliability of God and His Word. When we examine God and God's faithfulness to His Word and His promises and compare it to man, we see that God is trustworthy. Conversely, we see that man is a liar, man is untrustworthy, and Whenever fallen man attempts to accuse God and judge him, God is vindicated and man is condemned. Verse 5, quote, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man, unquote. Here, yet again, Paul gives another rhetorical question, which in the King James is admittedly a little hard to grasp. We can better paraphrase the above verse as follows. If our nature, which is a failure to measure up to the standards of God's righteousness, points out how righteous God is, then what shall we conclude? Is God acting unrighteously when he takes vengeance against us? Here, in context, Paul is dealing with the reality that every human's nature, without exception, is flawed and is seeking its own fleshly, carnal, and unregenerate desires. Ultimately, our human nature is like a worthless lump of coal, which is good for nothing except to be burnt. And it's only when we present a flawless diamond like uh, God to compare it with that we see the absolute disparity between that which is perfect and that which is corrupt. Now, following a certain humanistic logic, some would erroneously assume that God created the unrighteous, and thus when God takes vengeance on those whose nature tends like the coal to demonstrate God's perfection and righteousness, that God is being unrighteous when he takes vengeance on those who are unregenerate. But the truth is that when God created man, he made man, quote-unquote, very good. Man was in God's image, and there was perfect fellowship in the garden. It was man who made the choice to turn away from God 
And it was man who abandoned his covering grace and chose self-righteousness instead of God's imputed righteousness. So what's the answer to Paul's question with regard to whether or not God is unrighteous or God is unfair? Verse 6, quote, God forbid, if this is the case, then how is God going to judge the world, end quote? No, instead, God's ability to act with sovereignty and or judge the world is not dependent on any man's perspective. It's not dependent on any man's understanding, his belief, or his opinion. Yes, man's unrighteousness will, like a lump of coal, bring glory to God, who, like a diamond, is perfect and is righteous. Uh, but this is true of all creation. All things will ultimately expose and bring glory to God when we, in our perfected state, understand all things and see Him, God, as He, God, is. In fact, when we are in our perfected state, we will judge as God does, because we will again have God's created nature for us, which is perfect. Our human logic will fall flat and give way to God's righteous judgment. What God does through his bride, the church, and his people Israel, and our glorious triumphs in and through the ages in face of persecution and slanders and trials will be the basis by which the unregenerate world receives it's just condemnation. Verse 7. Here in verse 7, Paul continues the hypothetical fallacy by asking another question, which we will give parenthetically. Quote, If God's truthfulness and reliability is strengthened and glorified because of my falsehood, i.e. my lie, then why am I still condemned as a sinner? Unquote. So in other words, the question is, if a fallen creation and if fallen man all serve to give God glory in one way or another, like a lump of coal does to a diamond, then shouldn't fallen man receive a reward instead of punishment, since they are giving this glorifying contrast? When I think of this question, how many times have I heard those who are wallowing in some sin point their finger at God and or his saints and say, God loves me. Why would God not love me when he created me this way? No, God created Adam and Eve and they were both, quote unquote, very good. There was no sin. There was no rebellion. Adam and Eve, unfortunately, bought into Satan's lie, and they abandoned God and his covering grace. Uh, they fell. Adam and Eve reproduced their fallen nature a thousandfold into the billions that we see upon our planet today and throughout history. Our fallen nature is there from birth and it manifests itself in any one of many sins. None of these sins are created. 
none of these sins are approved by God. All sin is an offense to God, and it is not an excuse to continue. Verse 8. Here in verse 8, Paul's hypothetical fallacy argument reaches the height of humanistic foolishness. Here, parenthetically, the verse reads, quote, If so, why not intentionally do evil, that good may come as a result, as some people are alleging that we say, and whose condemnation is just, unquote. So, this parenthetical statement given by Paul points out that there were those during Paul's day who were doing one of two things. A. Some were accusing Paul of living and teaching what amounts to hyper-grace in connection to antinomianism. Now, hyper-grace is the idea that all sin, past, present, and future, are all forgiven and covered by Christ's propitiatory sacrifice. Further, and in addition to, just to make it clear and important what hyper-grace really is, all of the law, i.e. the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances, etc., are done away with and fulfilled in Christ. As a result, therefore, we are under no obligation to follow any of them. And we can live free of everything, doing whatever we please. As a result, hyper-grace then becomes a license to sin and to a get-out-of-jail-free card. In its most extreme form, there is a disdain for the law and the Old Testament and any call to holy living. Lastly, an increase in unregenerate thinking and living is viewed as contributing to and magnifying the work of Christ, since the ongoing sin in one's life demonstrates Christ's ongoing grace in one's life. So it's a it's a catch twenty two snowball effect where wherein potentially the more sin and the more unregenerate living that's going on in my life then the more that Christ's work on the cross is somehow magnified. Therefore, I will contribute to his work on the cross by sinning more so that his sacrifice will be thus magnified more. And you can see uh, thereby where the heresy really is in the hyper-grace uh, mentality. The second thing that was going on in Paul's day was that B, some were actually living out the above hypocrisy in their lives and wearing the sin and rebellion proudly as in their lives as a badge of their supposed quote-unquote Christianity. These people then twisted and used Paul's teaching and his language as well as any others as proof that their position was, in fact, correct. So, in the case of this heretical argument, to summarize, uh, the, quote, good that comes as a result, unquote, of doing that which evil is, number one, 
sin and rebellion stand to magnify God's righteousness. Two, sin and rebellion have their greatest magnification at the point of the cross where sin and rebellion are reconciled. Three, since one and two are true, then we can actively participate in increasing each sin by willingly and intentionally sinning and by rebelling each day in order to validate one and two. Number four, in all, we now have a rational and supposedly biblical excuse to sin. So the end result is that rather than being excused of sin and rebellion, we who continue to willfully sin and rebel against God demonstrate that we are in fact unregenerate to the same degree. Why? Well, the key factor in all of this is that God's work of true salvation in the lives of his elect is a transforming power which is real. It is an effect taking the lump of coal which we spoke of earlier and he is transforming what should be by all rights burned and making it instead into a diamond which reflects his glory. Alternately, we could say that true salvation is like being a piece of dry and dead wood which by God's grace he saves from the burn pile and breathes life into and then plants into rich soil. If the tree is truly alive, then the tree will bear leaves and eventually fruit according to its kind. If the tree never bears any fruit, and never bears any leaves, and remains dead wood, then we know that the tree remains and is dead wood. In every case, whether the tree, the coal, or man, our outward fruit, or lack thereof, demonstrates the reality of our inward condition. Verse 9, quote, are we, i.e. the Jews, better than they, i.e. the Gentiles? Not at all, because we have proved that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin, i.e. fallen short of God's glory, unquote. So in terms of our nature of sin, there is no hierarchy according to race, gender, ethnicity, or other category. All of mankind is in the same boat. Verse 10, quote, As it is written, there is not one single person ever who is righteous, unquote. Beginning here at verse 10, all the way to verse 18, it is apparent that Paul is drawing exclusively from the Old Testament, and in particular, Psalms, Proverbs, and Isaiah, as various writers are moved by God in those instances to reflect upon the condition of unregenerate man apart from God, which are characterized as those, quote, under sin. Verses 10 through 12 are a quote from Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, which says, quote, The Lord looked down upon heaven, upon the children of men, to see 
if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth any good. No, not one." Unquote. To this we may add Psalm chapter 53, verses 2 and 3, which say essentially the same thing. Quote, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them is gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one, unquote. In either case, we are given the clear revelation from the perspective of an infinite, holy God who sees the heart, the thoughts, and the intents of every man. The verdict is that man's nature has the inability to seek God, the inability to understand God or his attributes. We have all gone astray like a dumb sheep. We are all polluted and become unprofitable. None of us have the ability to measure up to God's goodness, holiness, or righteousness. The only exception is Christ, who is God, a very God, in the flesh. Here in verse 11 and 12, we see uh, Paul repeating what we have already seen in the above Old Testament verses. Verse 11, quote, There is none that understands, i.e. discerns. There is none that seeketh, i.e. searches or pursues God, unquote. Verse 12, quote, They have all turned aside, i.e. swerved from the right path. They are all become corrupt, i.e. to go bad or to sour. There is not one single person ever who does good in God's eyes, unquote. Verse 13, quote, Their throat is like an open grave. The thoughts and ideas that come from the inside create and lead to destruction and death. They use their tongues to deceive. The poison of asps is under their lips, unquote. Here, verse 13 quotes Psalm chapter 5, verse 9, which says, quote, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue, unquote. Here again, both Paul and the writer of Psalm 5 are referring to the wicked, the unregenerate. All mankind who at the outset has only the nature of sin and rebellion. Since the unregenerate are spiritually dead, then all of their members, their mouth, the inward part, the heart, the mind, the intellect, the soul, is also dead. These members are all under the bondage of sin and death. Thus, when the unregenerate speaks, it's like poison which consumes everything and brings death. 
For the time being, this concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah.